Okay. All right. Welcome to Real Estate Hustlers Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Appleman, founder and CEO of Appleman Properties. On this episode, we will be talking with Shane Carter, the president and CEO of Hampshire Capital. Shane has over 24 years of active real estate experience, which includes new, new developments, property repositioning from apartment buildings to commercial assets, including land. Shane has acquired and renovated and managed more than $215 million worth of multifamily and commercial assets and has built over $110 million in real estate through his construction and development arm. Shane, we truly appreciate you coming on the show today. If you could, just let everyone else know a little bit more about yourself. Thanks, Josh. Appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure to be here. Uh, great, to, great to be on your program. So um, yeah, live in New Hampshire. I've got a wife and three kids and, um, you know, love Love being outside, love being active, love, love, uh, love the, the active lifestyle, boating and, and, uh, and hiking and um, just in, enjoy nature in general. And obviously, I love real estate. This is all I do. This is all I've done for most of my career. And I'm extremely passionate about it. Awesome. Awesome. So we've got a, uh, we, we've got a lot of different changes this year, of course, from, uh, from last year. And then there's probably going to be more changes into next year. Um, with this time, why is a dedicated asset manager critical to the, the success in this new environment? Yeah, so good question. You know, we believe that, um, you know, one of the things that we're intending on uh, bringing in-house here uh, over the next 12 months is, is property management. And so prior to that, and one of the things that's leading us to that is, is, is not because we feel like it's a profit center, but it's really just a control mechanism. And so to tie into your question, the, the, the critical part is that I think a lot of folks who have assets make up the mistake is that they rely on their property manager to manage the asset the way they would want it managed, right? And, and so for us, that starts with culture. This is a people business um, at the end of the day. And at the property level and at every level, we're talking about people. We're talking about residents, their homes, and we're talking about the staff that, that runs the assets. And so the culture, uh, you're basically hiring out a third-party culture to manage your asset. And, and does that necessarily align with your company culture, your vision, uh, et cetera? Um, furthermore, most third-party management companies that, that, that we've found and, and seen, they don't necessarily manage the asset from an ownership mentality. And it's very different uh, to run a property management company as a for-profit business versus a, an ownership mentality at an asset. And so we very, very tightly manage our assets um, and have dedicated asset managers that are watching daily KPIs and really engaging with the local, um, with, with the property level staff, not just necessarily the regionals. That's, that's huge. And instilling and, and a sense of urgency when you've got uh, units that are down and, and getting those leased back up in a timely manner. Yeah, that's right. Um, and like you said, conveying the the message from top down, it's that message can get broken up in a lot of different ways when it's going outside of your um, uh, of your organization. I totally totally agree. Um, that's right. Perfect. What are your top strategies when identifying a market or an asset to buy? So, we we've identified that the the major MSA markets that that uh, that we believe in, um, and it's really just four states. It's just. Texas, North Carolina, South Carolina, Florida. And the reason we identified those is, is simply due to population dynamics, right? Where 
where are people moving? Where, where have they been moving? But more importantly, where do we uh, expect population growth to occur over the next five to 10 years, which is generally the business life cycle uh, for, for most of our acquisitions and assets. And, and that really leads to discussion. Then from there, we, you know, we've identified the major MSAs uh, within those markets that, that we believe in. Um, and mostly that's due to, to liquidity, right? So there's always going to be assets trading um, regardless of macro environments and macro conditions. Uh, and so in major MSAs, you know, million plus populations, et cetera, uh, there's just more inventory and there's more opportunity to buy in and to sell your assets at, at any given time. Uh, so we believe in that. The next layer down is really we... One of, our, one of our company kind of slogans or taglines is we buy neighborhoods first and assets second, meaning we drill into the MSAs and really get to the neighborhood level data that shows, you know, within, you know, we just bought an asset in Dallas, right? And so is Dallas a great place to buy multifamily? Sure, absolutely it is. Is every neighborhood an intelligent place to buy an asset in Dallas? Absolutely not. Right. So you need to be careful with where you're buying. And so we do that next level analysis uh, and get very granular on that neighborhood level. Uh, we look at the one mile, three mile, and we really ensure that we have positive population growth trends. We have median household incomes that are above the averages. Uh, we have lower crime rates in general. Uh, and those are some of the main, you know, main characteristics that we look at before we'll even look at a T12 and rent roll and analyze an asset. We want to make sure that we're buying in neighborhoods that are hitting in a positive trajectory for the life cycle of our ownership. Got it. Are you all focusing on primary or secondary? I don't think tertiary with the, uh, the population, but is it one of those two? Yeah, no, we're, we're definitely only interested in, in the primary markets. Got it. Okay. Cool. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Uh, what are the top metrics that you use when um, uh, when analyzing an asset? In, in analyzing it relative to acquisition, when we're going to buy it. Yeah, like just um, what are the key things that you look like you look at to determine the next step? Like um, besides population, are you looking for? Um, uh, of course, you say crime rates, you're looking for population. What about the asset itself, though? The um, Is there a certain unit mix, unit uh, count? Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so right. Once we determine that we have the right neighborhood, we have the right demographics, um, then we're analyzing the asset itself. Um, we, we really only buy 150 plus units. Most of our acquisitions have actually been well over 250 units. Um, but that's really our kind of baseline threshold. They, they, they have to be over, you know, 150 to 200 units in size. And that just really is a function of getting us to scale, getting our acquisition goals aligned. Um, and also coupling that with the, the you know, sizes of equity checks that, that we like to get uh, from, you know, from JV equity, from institutional capital, from family office groups. You know, most of those groups, they, they won't even look at anything unless it's a minimum $5 million check size. And then we're we're obviously um, you know we want to be in assets where there's an economy of scale where we have buying power where we have um, you know an intelligent staffing uh, uh, ratios as well, and so we're not necessarily relying upon one or two individuals at any given time in an asset. Uh, from there, we really look at 
you know, uh, uh, a few important things. Number one is, is how are we acquiring that asset? Is it, is it off market? Is it on market? You know, we really um, appreciate and, and spend a lot of time with our broker relationships. I think broker relationships are critical. Uh, I think they're going to become even more critical as we move forward further into this cycle. Um, and really maintaining that those relationships and maintaining, uh, keeping them up to date with what you're doing and, and what you look like and, and vice versa, sort of requesting information on what they're seeing uh, in the in in the markets that you're interested in is really important. Uh, and, and we spend a lot of time doing that. Gotcha. Uh, next, the next part of the story we really look at is, do we have you know, do we have a good basis? Are we acquiring this asset at a good basis? I feel like, um, you know, over the last two years, there haven't been too many stories where you could say, hey, we, we really got this at a good basis relative to, you know, history or to necessarily, you know, what's going on in the market. Um, and we feel like, you know, as we move forward into 23, that there are going to be more and more opportunities to acquire assets at a very good basis, simply due to the capital market conditions. Um, the, the sh what we believe to be a short-term rise in cap rates uh, and pricing reduction that's occurring. And so, you know, now is, is potentially a really good time if you're careful and diligent to acquire assets at a really good basis, right? The, the number one rule in, in, in real estate, um, this is going back, you know, probably 15 years ago, I think one of my mentors said, you make your money when you buy, yeah. right? You realize your returns when you sell, but you ensure the success of your project and when you buy it, how you buy and the basis that you buy at. Um, so that's critical. And then obviously the, the other thing we really look at is we, um, most of our assets are value add opportunities. And so we're constantly looking at, um, at the comp set and we wanna make sure that we're buying assets that are at the lower tier of the comp set relative to average effective rent. So that we know there's a clear story in terms of how we can raise rents uh, via a value-add program. If there's a loss-to-lease burn-off, we love those stories as well. Um, it's potentially a sign of, of, uh, of mismanagement or not, you know, not, not the most diligent management that, that could be done at an asset. And, and the reason we, like, we, we require that is because uh, we never want to be the market leader in rent and any asset that we buy. So we take a look at who is the market leader in rents, who's setting that bar. And we always make sure that when we're underwriting, that we're coming in under what the, the market leaders are already doing. That way we know we have a cushion, we know we're safe. Uh, and we know that even if things go down a bit, um, we're still under where they're currently riding and, and pushing the market to. So we like to be in that sort of 75th to 80th percentile of the market. And we like to buy assets that are you know, currently closer to the 25th percentile, right? And that's where we're fundamentally adding value and raising that, uh, raising that, having that revenue growth build and having that NOI growth. That's perfect. You said a very, very key key point is um, you make your money on the buy. And I know that the, um, the entire, I was going to say this year and last year was, was buying based on Performa and buying at a future what if value. And I, I know that that's, that's softening up, speaking with uh, some owners and brokers, but I think that there's still a, uh, there's still a strong feeling from owners that they can still get, uh, they still can achieve a premium for their, for their, uh, their complex. And I think it's going to take a little bit longer for that to, to wear off, maybe first, second quarter of next year. And then like you'd said, there's going to be some real opportunities. Um, 
they're buying at a sub four and three cap on a, a what if future value. There's going to be, I think, some hard learning lessons coming up here as well. Yeah, um, I agree, Josh. Unfortunately. Um, so benefits of multifamily investing for passive investors. I know it's it's massive. And uh, if I could just have you elaborate on that. Sure. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll lay out a, a couple of the principles that I think are intelligent uh, for for passive investing. Uh, the number one, I would say, is leverage, the principle of leverage. Right. So if you go and you buy, uh, I don't know, let's say, you know, a, a typical stock or equity, like uh, let's say you buy Apple stock. Right. And uh, I don't know what it's trading for, but let's say it's, you know, 100 bucks a share. You take one hundred dollars or you take a thousand dollars and you buy 10 shares of Apple. That's a one to one ratio. Right. It, it took the exact dollar amount that you have to buy the exact share in that in that uh, in that equity that you're, that you're purchasing and so as that equity hopefully rises in value you're you're sort of in a one-to-one -one relationship with your capital and in the growth of of it whereas in real estate we use leverage right historically you know perhaps up to even 75 percent leverage currently you know you're probably more like in the 55 to 65 percent leverage range but still leverage is key because you're using bank debt and you're using low interest bank debt to acquire an asset. Um, and so you fundamentally are, are, are growing your money faster because of the principle of leverage. The second one is, is obviously pulling your money with other, with other people, right? With, uh, with my money, with your money, we all pull our money together and we all get to buy assets that, that we likely couldn't acquire on our own. And there are inherent benefits in that, namely scale, um, and and with the scale, you have um, the, the benefit of of larger assets. Are look if you only have enough money to go buy a duplex, right, or a fourplex, and you buy it yourself, and and then in that duplex you have a vacancy, and somebody moves out, and it takes you three four months to fill it up. Well, you're now fifty percent vacant, right? Whereas in a two hundred unit asset. You have somebody move out. Well, it doesn't even move the needle, right? You, you can't. It, it doesn't matter. And you have that if it takes three months to to fill the the unit back up, which by the way it never should. But let's say it does. It really isn't affecting your operations. It isn't affecting your cash flow that much. Uh, and so there's benefit and safety in that scale when you're passive investing. Um, and then I guess tied in with that would be you know the the passive investing principle of you know, you don't have to necessarily worry about that. You're not worrying about tenants, trash and toilets, right? You, you sleep soundly at night. You're not fielding those calls. Whereas if you go out and buy a duplex, quadplex, et cetera, that's active investing. And I don't want to discourage anyone who's interested in doing that. That's that's certainly where, how I started um, and organically grew my holdings and myself to be able to, to do what we do today. But um, but maybe that's not in everyone's best interest. Maybe that's not what you want to do. And, and maybe having a, you know, a 2X equity multiple on your money without having to do really anything other than, you know, check your, your, your quarterly updates um, and have that money grow for you passively is extremely valuable and extremely important. Yeah, totally agree. I, I think the, having something that where you can actually drive out and go touch it and that you're in, your, your cash is in bricks versus in a, uh, like you, you brought the stock market versus a, a stock at a company where you're relying on them to, to perform and you're, and you're hoping the market conditions will, will stay in place for your dollars to make more money to come back. It's a uh, uh, real estate. You can feel it, touch it. It's um, uh, historically, it's going to go up in value. It's um, 
it's, it's I think it's a, a sense of a, a peace as well. Yeah, without uh, question. And, and it's got tremendous resiliency in, in, in the face of, you know, economic downturns, right? Even if you look back to, to, you know, 08, 09, you know, the largest, uh, you know, largest depression or recession that we've had in, sort of in our lifetimes. Um, and multifamily housing was extremely resilient. Most of those, most assets really, you know, didn't drop below 85% occupied. Um, and most of them were able to cash flow. Certainly everything I owned during that time period was, was just fine. Um, granted it was smaller and I self-managed, but, but needless to say, it, it, you know, if you if you just held on through that time period, then you did fine and everything everything was fine. If you if you needed to sell or had to sell, that's when you get in trouble. And so there you know there's nothing that's going to replace um, housing. It's evergreen. It will always be there. It will always be a need. It's been there for thousands of years. It will be there in thousands of years from now. Uh, whereas stocks, bonds, companies, etc. Those are a bit more fickle. And so, you know, I agree with you 100%. Real estate is is a great hedge and a great risk-adjusted return. Yeah, and uh, to just to add on, on to the, uh, the housing will never go away. I know uh, 2020 COVID, it, it um, I think solidified the people working at home scenario. And that's where you get these major hedge funds that are, that are really putting a lot out there on buying houses. Because uh, reading a report, they're... Um, uh, the work at home is not going away. People are going to be working at home more and more. And um, these hedge funds know that. That's why they want to buy more and more real estate. And essentially, the house is turning into the office space and the office space asset class um, will never be the same. It just, um, it won't. We're, we're, I'm in my office right now. We've got uh, 15,000 square feet and it's just It'll never be what it was before because you can you can have a hybrid approach. So yeah. um, uh, multifamily real estate is truly, uh, in my opinion, one of the, the safest uh, investments that you can have out there right now, and and I think moving into the future. Uh, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Uh, got one more question for you, Shane. What are the things you're looking for at the with, with your investments going into 2023? So, you know, again, what we're looking for is uh, we're, we're being cautious. We're being careful with what we go after. It has to check all those boxes that I mentioned prior. It has to be in a major MSA. It has to be in one of the better neighborhoods within that MSA. It has to have pop, you know, positive population growth trajectory, solid household income, um, you know, relatively sound crime data to it. it has to be, have a, a way we can fundamentally add value, not just you know, expect or hope or wish that there's going to be organic, uh, you know, rent growth, um, especially double digits that we've seen. I don't think anybody's expecting that anymore. But, but we, you know, one of our metrics, I didn't mention this, but one of our metrics for value add is that we need to fundamentally um, increase net operating income by 50% in three years. That's, that's, a, that's a kind of our back of the napkin math. If we can do that, then we know that we are creating value at the property and that regardless of macroeconomic conditions, we have fundamentally created value and our investment is sound and our investors capital is, is safe and secured. And so that's one of the driving metrics that we analyze when we look at an opportunity is can we do that? Is that reasonable? Is that achievable? Um, both from, uh, from an execution standpoint and from a you know, comparable rent or comp analysis standpoint. Um, 
and then, you know, again, I, I think that the basis story really can't be understated, especially in this market, we are really paying attention to, to our going in basis and ensuring that we are utilizing in-place debt whenever possible. That is that is a fixed, you know, potentially lower than the market rate debt. We're we're looking at opportunities where the seller can perhaps carry back some and and uh, and really create a scenario where we are creating safety for ourselves and our investors in the asset. Um, but you really can't beat the, the basis place. So if you're buying in a high interest rate environment, right, which is where we are and which is where 2023 will be for, for most probably the entire year until it stabilizes. And perhaps at the end, you know, Chairman Powell maybe lowers interest rates a bit, right, but it won't be extreme. We're going to stay in, a, in an elevated interest rate environment for the next 12 months. But if you are capitalizing on folks who have debt expiring, you know, rate caps expiring, business plans that where they have to exit, um, and and you can pick those up at a basis that's intelligent, giving the capital market conditions today, and then you hold the asset and you look to sell it in three, four, five, six, seven years from now, when we're in a different environment where cap rates will have presumably uh, come back down, maybe not dramatically, but they will have uh, come back down from when you bought it. And you couple that with a value add strategy, you're you're talking about a very compelling risk adjusted return metric now. That's that's huge. And you gave some very good nuggets there for anyone that's listening and wants to write it down. The uh, the fifty percent based on uh, in place NOI and basing it up. So, are you looking for for adding different services like uh, valet trash or um, different amenities to the complex to help boost up, let's say, gross rent? Yeah, and good question. Uh, we. Yeah, we always look, you know, we we do our baseline analysis just on just on the just on the rent, right? Just on the the base level rent. Um and can we can we achieve what we want to do with that? We don't necessarily rely upon all the other the other income light items uh and rubs and 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 sort of, you know, sort of those secondary tertiary value add strategies, but we absolutely look to employ them at every asset, right? We look very closely at rubs, we make sure that you know, we're in the right marketplace. We utilize services that, that keep us in the, in the right level, uh, especially that's uh, something we can identify at the, um, uh, you know, at the pre-offer stage where we're analyzing opportunities is, you know, where is there other income? Where, where are the rubs program? Uh, where are they missing the mark on some of these things, whether it's, you know, covered parking or, you know, adding, um, you know, small yards or adding washer and dryers. Uh, where can we where can we really boost the other income line items at that asset? We we always look at that, but it's not it's not our primary focus. Those are sort of secondary, tertiary, additive gains to our business model, but not the primary. Um, you know, but one of the primary things we always look at too is, you know, is the exteriors and the amenities, and um, and can we. Can we really create a better environment at the asset, a better, a better resident experience? Um, because at the end of the day, we are renovating and owning people's homes. And, and we take that very seriously. And we truly try to create environments at every asset where we're making the we're making the asset, we're making the property a better place to live, safer, cleaner, nicer, and better amenities. That's perfect. That is. Phenomenal. I've got one more bonus question for um, for anyone that's looking to break into multifamily or multi, uh, any other real estate asset class. How would you recommend them um, to, to start on their journey down real estate? 
Yeah. Wow. Good question, Josh. I would say to, to really first ask yourself, you know, which, which path you want to be on. Do you want to be on the active side and do you want to uh, go down the road of actively managing, actively dealing with the day-to-day, -day, dealing with the construction, dealing with um, the tenants and dealing with the myriad challenges uh, and, 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 and issues that we have in owning and managing assets? Or do you want to go down the passive road? There's no right or wrong answer, right? That's an individual choice for every person. Um, and then from there, if you're going to go the active road, I guess my... Uh, my background is, is probably uh, is probably you know skewing my response to this one, but you know I started small, right? I started buying you know a four unit and then a six unit and then an eight unit and a twenty unit and really kind of organically grew my holdings uh, and learned the business small and and, and sort of self managed and got to learn the business you know at the ground level that way and to me that that worked and that made sense. It was a longer path for sure. Um, but this, you know, real, you know, multifamily and, and real estate is, it's not a get rich quick thing. It's a get wealthy, slow scheme. And, and so you really have to have that longevity in mind. You know, you really need to be thinking 10, 20 years of, of doing this. Um, if you're passionate about it on the active side, on the passive side, I would say, um, first of all, definitely have a certain portion of your investable, um, uh, you know, holdings in, in real estate uh, because of all of the myriad of benefits that we discussed earlier, uh, especially relative to equities. Now, I'm not saying, you know, don't, you don't need to be like me and have all, have all your money in, in real estate, right? But a certain percentage, and, and that's going to be different for each person and, and, and their age and their risk tolerance, but certainly a certain percentage of it would be intelligent. And then from there, really um, do your due diligence, vet, vet the sponsor. You know, the, the institutional capital that we work with and, and retail investors that we work with, they're wise to know that the operator and the people that you're doing business with are more important than the asset or the opportunity that's in front of you. So really get to know the sponsor, get to know the operator, get to know, you know, the, the good, the bad, the ugly. They, they should have all three of those to share with you. I know I do. And, um, yeah. and they should be able to really uh, transparently and honestly lead you uh, down, down the path of intelligent investing passively in real estate. That's perfect. That is perfect. I definitely appreciate it. And Shane, we truly appreciate your time today. If someone wants to get a hold of you to find out more about your company and, and hopefully work with you, how can they get a hold of you? Sure. Yeah, appreciate it. Um, you know, absolutely. Always looking to uh, connect with good people on, you know, Facebook, LinkedIn. You can find me, you know, Shane Carter and H uh, on LinkedIn. Um, our website is, is www.hampshire.capital. Um, happy to, uh, to have people reach out to us that way as well. Uh, we have uh, uh, just finished putting the finishing touches on our ebook, and that'll be that'll be up on our website here in the next month or so, uh, and that'll hopefully have, be a, be a lot more detailed information as well for folks to uh, to read into about who we are, what we do, and what our investment thesis is. Perfect. And then I'll make sure to have your contact information. We send this out as well for everybody to get a hold of you. And uh, again, Shane, we truly appreciate your time, your experience. Uh, it's true wealth. Um, we'll definitely be talking soon. All right. Appreciate it, Josh. Thank All you. All right. Thanks, Shane. Yes, sir. All right.